0: readers. Welcome to Books Connect Us from Penguin Random House. This is a podcast about staying connected with each other and the stories and authors who inspire us. Emma Brody has worked in book publishing for a decade, most recently as an executive editor at Little Brown's Voracious Imprint. Her debut novel, Songs in Ursa Major, is a transporting love story of a gifted young singer-songwriter who must find her own voice. Full of music, stardom, and heartbreak, this book pulses with romantic longing and asks the question so many female artists must face. What are we willing to sacrifice for our dreams? Now let's join book editor Jennifer Jackson in conversation with author Emma Brody.
1: so good to be speaking with you.
2: Jenny I'm so happy to be doing this. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I am good. I'm very good. A little allergen. I'm allergic to the pollen. But other than that happy to be here.
1: And is is that Martha's Vineyard pollen that you're breathing right now or Brooklyn pollen that you're breathing?
2: It's neither. It's Hmm. Mount Tremper pollen. Yes we are about I don't know 10 minutes south of Woodstock at the moment so still in sort of a hippie community but it's 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 a whole new world of pollen lots of for forsythia and lilacs at the moment wow but I do
1: appreciate your dedication to only living in hippie outposts within the pandemic very well done
2: we have a bright yellow car, so we need to choose our habitats wisely. <laughs> this is the first place that's been in New York. So our license plate isn't getting like rage tailgated, which is nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the car, the car is the first priority. Most of my life is organized around it. So.
1: The car and the dog.
2: Yeah, and the dog. Is- <laughs> exactly. Uh,
1: well, um. I wanted to ask you some questions about songs in Ursa Major, as you know, this book is just one of the very, very best things I've read in years and years and years, and I'm not the only one, and you know, Kevin Kwan raved about it on the Today Show, and the indie booksellers have given us quote after quote, and we, um, we just have so many terrific things lined up for publication. So very briefly, I'll introduce the book by saying that Songs and Ursa Major is a love story, and it's about two musicians, Jane Quinn and Jesse Reed, and they fall in love, and they go on tour together, and it's all set in 1969 and then in through the early 70s. And I know from talking to you that you were inspired to write this based on the real-life romantic relationship between Joni Mitchell and James Taylor. What what was there one spark for you? What made you say yes? Joni, (laughs) that's, I see
2: something. Um, That's such a good question. Uh, Basically, yeah, I think there was one moment. So I love the song You Can Close Your Eyes by James Taylor, which is kind of one of his like workhorse songs like it's from the very beginning of his career it's from his third album mudslide slim and blue horizon and anytime he's done a television appearance or an encore or like a collaboration in the past 50 years he's sung this song so he's had more partners singing this duet um, which is like not quite a love song and not quite the blues um it's just sort of like this wonderful all-purpose beautiful melancholy lullaby uh with every single person you could possibly imagine so I thought of it, there's this really famous recording of him and Carly Simon singing it together on their Martha's Vineyard compound from the late 70s. It's like two years prior to their separation. And I assumed he'd written it about her. And then I realized while reading Carly Simon's autobiography, researching this book, that in fact, he had written it several years prior and it had been for Joni Mitchell and that kind of blew my mind because it was a song that I've known and cherished my whole life and I thought I I thought I knew what it was about and then I didn't and that surprise was so disorienting because I think some of our guidepost songs can be that way for us and we have them fixated in our brain in a certain way it's sort of like finding out your parent had a life before you were born you know like you have these fixed. Points in your mind and then when one of them moves, it creates space for creativity. And that was definitely the moment. And and there's a recording of James and Joni singing it together uh, in Wembley Stadium from when he was touring with her prior to Sweet Baby James's release, like the song goes way back. So I think that if there was one sort of catalyzing realization, it was that. And I just, it lit my brain on fire. And I was like, well, if that's true, then what else could be true? It's
1: amazing. It,
2: I mean, it'll come around like that. that
1: well, did you know before you read that that fact? Did you know that James and Joni had been a couple? Because honestly, that was new information for me before I read your book.
2: I had no idea. I had no idea because I think their Carly and James's relationship was so storied. Like they were the yeah. musical Brad and Angelina of their day. So I think even though James and Joni were both huge stars in their own right, and c- kind of what's amazing is that they can, they both continue to be these eons later, um, their relationship was completely eclipsed by the Carly relationship and all the drama that followed with that. And I think it's just been sort of lost to time for many people. Like I've, I've so many people since finding out about this story have come forward to me being like, I love either of them or both of them. And it is revelatory on a regular basis to people that they were a couple. And it's so fascinating when you think about it, because back in the day, like, Joni appeared in Rolling Stone as, like, the old lady of the year. Like, she was getting the same kind of scrutiny, although not as intensely as, like, people today as Taylor Swift um, for that time. And so it's fascinating, too, to me how these people who are now, like, canonical figures they're huge icons they had their beginnings too and they were gossip fodder too so I don't know I kind of visit that moment
1: well that's something I was really curious about because one of the really um interesting things you write about in this book is um the various struggles that Jane has with her record company and trying to be a true artist as a woman and there one of the conflicts she has is that she's sort of unwilling to trade on her private life, and she's unwilling to be just the girlfriend and she's unwilling to talk about what nail polish she uses because she <laughs> thinks, no, we need to talk about my music. This is that's not that's not who I want to be. And I, I think you know for all of us, when we look around at the at the landscape of young female musicians today, we see that's absolutely a big part of how how female musicians are treated, whether we're thinking about, Taylor Swift, or we're thinking about Billie Eilish. How do you think, um, how do you think it was for, I mean, both for Joni Mitchell and for your character, Jane, and how is that different from how it is now for pop stars?
2: Um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, nothing's changed. And I think in a lot of ways, everything has, because now we have even, even in my own life, like with the advent of Twitter and Instagram, we have so much more access to stars in a way that we never did before, but they also have much more control of their own narratives. So, you know, Jesse in my book, um, you know, this is taking it away from the feminist question a little bit, but like he is an addict, and there's no way today that that a star of that magnitude would be able to hide that because yeah. he'd be on social media and he'd be under constant, updated, daily scrutiny. So I think it was a slower, a much slower news cycle, but you know, it's the same way with currency, like a dollar was worth a lot more back then. Mm -hmm. So was a photograph. And I think, you know, the, the same sort of ratio to like celebrity to regular person existed, like you, a regular person wouldn't have had to see their exes or hear from them if they didn't want to, because everything was done over the phone. There was no voicemail. Um, Everything was done over like physical letters. So the kinds of like endorphin rushes and like dopamine hits and withdrawals that we all go through now, like looking after our loves on social media, that was something that only celebrities at that stage would have had to deal with. Um, So I think, you know, that's something that like now is quite regular, but at the time it wasn't. And the same way that that See if I can see if I can untangle what I've started here. Yeah. <laughs> the same way that that um, you know has become more prevalent, but at the time was like unique. I think so was like any kind of coverage in that in that way. Like I think um, for for people like Joni Mitchell, having one piece that sort of nailed her as this like you know very like promiscuous, for lack of a better word, woman was devastating the same way it is now for like Taylor Swift to have constant barrage in that. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know, I guess I, guess I shouldn't really speak out of turn. I don't actually know at all how either of these women feel, but my, my supposition is that it's as a celebrity, you're constantly taking on more than what a regular person would have to deal with. And the version of that back then, I think still would have stung the same way because no yeah. one would have gotten it. It would have been completely beyond what anyone else would have had to deal with. Um, well,
1: turns in the- some ways, what you're what you're saying is so interesting to me, because I think that when you decided to write this book and set it in 1969, and then the early 70s, there's a very obvious reason you did it, which is that you were inspired by the music of the time and that brought you there. But also by setting it by making it historical, you in some ways do away with some things that make like you know, writing modern love stories impossible in that you can constantly look at people's Facebooks or Instagrams, or they can constantly call each other in the middle of the night or text each other or whatever, you know, but I also think that by setting it in 1969, I'm fascinated with what you're saying about how it was a uniquely strange thing for somebody famous to be able to follow the personal lives of an ex lover through the media, where that's become commonplace now, that was uniquely strange was really the reason you decided to set it in that time because of the music, or were you interested also in writing a historical novel?
2: Such a good question. Um, I did not set out to write a historical novel. I ended up, I had started it out as a completely different plot. Like I knew about Jane's family. I wanted to write about this matriarchal clan on an island off the coast of Massachusetts. That was the first piece. And I knew there was a musical component um, and I thought it was going to be a dead parent and it was going to be like the, a funeral plot where they'd go home mm-hmm. essentially for a weekend and explore these relationships all in the past. And I really wanted the dead mother to be a folk singer. And then originally it was going to be sort of a cross between like Dolores O'Riordan and then maybe also mm-hmm. with some like Kate Bush aspects. Like I had a whole other thing in my head. But in order to research this, I started looking back at other women's careers and reading these biographies. And then the more I researched the mother, the more I started to realize that she was the most interesting person in the story and that it would just be so much better if I actually just covered her real life as opposed to writing about it in retrospect. So sort of this executive decision to like go back to where the action was. And at that point, I had become attached to these folk songs and it's the music that I love. So I figured, okay, we'll go with, we'll go with this time period that suits it. And then there were these sort of added benefits that came along with it. Like book publishing, which is where I work is very similar to music production, but the way we publish books now is akin to how they produced music. 50 years ago. It's Ah. just still a slower cycle. So I had a leg up in terms of sort of being able to read into these like corporate moves and like the way the producers would have behaved, because I kind of assumed it would be similar to book publishing. And I was able to use that as a springboard for that part of the research. So there were all sorts of things that like kind of suited like where I was going that I had in my arsenal that fit into this time period whereas like if I'd had to research MTV or any of that other stuff that is like so part of what music is now I would have been starting from completely square one.
1: But it's so interesting to me that the very like little grain of an idea of this book was about wanting it to be on an island off Massachusetts and of course, you know, in your book, Baileen Island is a thinly veiled portrait of Martha's Vineyard and Martha's Vineyard was the scene of so many real life folk music moments and where James Taylor has his home. So that is so uh, that's so neat the way that Martha's Vineyard was actually always kind of woven into the DNA of this book and obviously you've spent time there too did you did you end up having to learn more about Martha's Vineyard while you were researching it or was that just like a lucky thing that you got to draw on
2: Um, I did have to learn more. I read one like giant history phone book tome about the vineyard that had been written by a local historian just to sort of get a lay of the land because I was also toying with the idea of like, I was like, what if it starts even further back to when the Quins originally land on the island and we see her stealing off of this kerosene crate from a whale freighter. Um, and I wanted to know as much as I could just to be able to quickly reference it. Like I feel like when you write a book like this, you have to sort of steep seven eighths of the iceberg under the water. And even if the reader only gets that final eighth above the surface, like you have to know all of it in order to be able to deploy facts at just the right moment. And you can kind of like sound your way through some of that and fill it in later. But it's just a lot easier to have a little bit of a head start in terms of you know your global understanding. So yeah, I did read about like the Methodists, the settlers, like how all the different towns were formed. And I I wanted to have a sense of the island's makeup because I knew anecdotally growing up that it was an incredibly diverse place. Like we just to fill in, we used to go there in the summers when I was a kid. And I always felt, you know, that it was an incredibly progressive and welcoming community, but I wanted to understand why that was and the exact makeup of the islanders and two of Jane's bandmates are Wampanoag and I wanted to understand how that piece fit into the rest of the island and it's actually something I don't even really go into detail in in the book but I wanted to understand it so that when I wrote those characters they would be you know as grounded as possible um and yeah as far as the JT and Carly connection they like the story goes that essentially they both grew up going to the vineyard with their parents had met casually in Menemsha as kids. And then when they reconnected romantically, they went back and JT had bought a compound of sorts a, a plot of land. And he was creating a house and they built a house together. And they, they then built a nightclub and Carly still lives there. I believe James and his, some of his siblings are there, but I don't know how regularly he makes it. But their lore is very much still a part of the island and is definitely like a waking memory that you know all the radio stations play their music. It's you know, they their family web is very much present. So if you grow up there, you kind of are aware of them as figures in a way that I don't think you really would be elsewhere in the northeast. It's just like you're on their stopping grounds, quite literally. Course, so yeah. I think when I was choosing folk heroes, they were obviously the two. And I think if you you know, grow up with parents who love them, which I did. It's all of it feeds into this sort of like strange level of consciousness of these two people (laughs) actually. Yeah, go
1: ahead. the, the music, just all of the music is so alive in your book. And, you know, obviously the past year has been really hard for music lovers because we haven't been able to go hear live music. We haven't been going to concerts. One of my favorite days this year was walking through Brooklyn Heights and there was an opera singer just standing on his front steps singing and maybe 30 people were standing in the street, you know, six feet away wearing masks, listening, and some people were just weeping because it had been so long since they'd heard music. But your book just vibrates with the feeling of being in an audience and it's it's an incredible feeling right now when we miss it so much did you um did you go to concerts to research the book did you listen just to tons and tons of old records what were you doing to to capture the music the way you did
2: that's such a nice question um what did i do so I did one specific trip to research for the story. I really wanted to see the Troubadour and that was sort of my treat to myself for finishing the first draft. Um, The Troubadour is this like legendary venue in West Hollywood where every single great 70s star made their entrance into the American music scene. And Jane sings her big album, her big number there for the first time songs and Ursa Major is the song. Um, And so I really wanted to see what it looked like to make sure that I had it right. So I I went to go see Bedouin, uh, who's like this incredible folk goddess in in December of 2019. It's actually the last trip that I took before the pandemic, and I edited the book all the way out on the plane, and edited it all the way back. And I was able to go and check out the Troubadour and actually see a woman perform there, which was so wonderful. And it's you can just feel the history when you're in this room, and it's got like a very specific smell, like all of it, all of that was wonderful. And then as far as as like the rest of it, I listened to Blue by Joni Mitchell and mudslide slim in the blue horizon basically on repeat the entire time i was reading the book and i would like blue's only 36 minutes so you can take in a blue anytime like you can take in a blue on lunch like you can you can do it like whenever you need whenever you need a blue and it's like one of these albums where i think you you hit a threshold where you have listened to it so many times that like go around the bend and you start picking up on like strange small nuances that like you're like how did i miss this before this is my seventy thousandth time listening to this but there's just always something fresh because it is just this incredible recording um and yeah it was it was fascinating because those are the two albums that James Taylor and Joni Mitchell produced coming out of their relationship so if there's any trace of the relationship it's in these lyrics and like they both lent each other tracks like part of what I thought was so like compelling about these two this relationship that had been lost to time is like the only evidence that it ever happened is kind of on these albums so I found that really inspiring and and just really steeped myself in it and at one time I could tell you how many times the word blue was mentioned on both albums like I had a whole web um, yeah. So it, it was very inspiring.
1: That's beautiful. The idea of these ghosts or love notes written through the music. Um, now you have embarked on sort of a different kind of writing lately because Johnson Earth, the major is being made into a film and you've been adapting the screenplay. What's that been like?
2: It is a fascinating process. I've got to tell you. Um, screenwriting is, the exact opposite of novel writing. Like you are showing everything you once had to tell and telling everything you once had to show. And it really is a play. It's just, it's been fascinating. Like I really wanted to keep the spirit of the book intact. And in order to do that, I found myself having to rethink entire sequences just to make sure that like the actual emotional result was the same as it had been in the book. Because if you show the same number of scenes or do the same number of micro scenes or have a character that doesn't say much, actually, Jane, my main character, isn't a particularly loquacious woman, you wouldn't think it listening to me, but she's, she's very, very, a very cool cucumber. Um, In order to have that same effect, I had to change so much. So it was a huge learning curve. Um, But it was really exciting. And it's, it's so exciting to imagine the possibility of real people stepping in and playing these parts that, you know, that's motivation in and of itself to kind of learn and level up. So it was well, an amazing process. I'm in awe of you that you were
1: able to do that. I mean, I, I wonder if some of that is because your day job is you're a book editor. And so you're very used to reworking things and killing darlings and moving on and moving things around and being, you know, that you in your job, you're not allowed to be precious. So I don't, I don't necessarily know how people would be able to be like that with their own work. So I admire that so much. And I'm so excited to see it. I know we only have a few moments left, and so I wonder if you might tell us about a book or two that you've been reading lately or something you'd like to recommend to your readers.
2: Well, this is just sort of a book crush, but I, I just got my grubby little paws on um, the, the Great Great Circle by Maggie Ship said, and I'm so excited to read that. I've read both of her other books, and I'm like saving it for a treat for myself. I cannot wait. Um, it's the story it's it's a dual narrative of a woman who is playing this like incredible female explorer and I believe it's in the 1950s and then she has a film being made of her life and so the other part is about the actress playing her and I I cannot wait to read this book I'm I have an edit actually speaking of my day job that I'm like waiting to get off my desk and once that's over I'm sinking my teeth into this I can't wait um, and then I'm reading also uh what is it? moonflower murder by alan horowitz who is this author that um he he's a tv writer and an author and he originated midsummer murders which is this like 20 year long series in the uk and i he's a william morrow author and i previously worked there and i start i became a fan of him while i was working there and i would get the books for free and i just bought this one and it looks so good um, and I'm kind of like dipping in as I go to bed, which is kind of weird. Like I'm reading about murder right before I go to sleep, but I do <laughs> think, um, yeah. So those are the two that I'm, I'm thinking about right now.
1: Well, uh, I'm, I'm just amazed that you have so many things going on and you're doing them all so beautifully. And I'm so excited for people to read songs in Ursa major. And I'm so proud to be working with you. And so glad that we got to talk today.
2: Oh, well, Jenny, thank you so much. And, and I should say, like, you deserve so much credit for all of the amazing changes you made to this book and for making it so much stronger and more fluid throughout than I ever could have done on my own. So I can, like, it is, editorial is such a partnership and I appreciate, I appreciate you doing this podcast with me, first of all. And I appreciate all you did to make the book so beautiful. So thank
1: well, you. Well, thank you. Let's
0: do lots more books together.
2: Yeah. Yay. <laughs> Yay.
0: Thank you for listening to Books Connect Us. For more great book recommendations and information about your favorite authors, feel free to follow Penguin Random House on social media or visit penguinrandomhouse.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts as it helps more listeners to find our show. This podcast is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. I've been Erin Leaf. And until next time, this has been Books Connect Us.